This episode of The Past and the Curious is brought to you by Candlewick Press, publisher of The Suffragist Playbook, Your Guide to Changing the World, by Rebecca Boggs Roberts and Lucinda Robb. Are you passionate about a cause that you'd like to fight for? Take a few tips from the suffragists who led one of the largest and longest movements in American history. This book for young readers is a blend of suffragist history and tactics, and the eye-opening look at their playbook shows that many of their strategies are still being used today. The Suffragist Playbook is available October 27, 2020, wherever books are sold. Yeah, I know, that's what I'm saying. Like, I can't remember the last time that I used a phone book. A phone book? Are you kidding me? Oh, are you kidding me? We're on, okay. Well, my name is Mick Sullivan, and welcome to The Past and the Curious. This is episode number 48. It's all about communication. Great moments in communication. We've got the transatlantic cable, and Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Watson in the invention of the telephone. They're both really interesting stories. I'm excited for you to hear them. I'm also excited for you to hear my friends Greg and Abigail Maupin. They're back by popular request. I had so much positive feedback about their appearance a couple episodes back uh, that I had to have them back. And, and I thought that the transatlantic cable story was a great one for that. So enjoy them. They are treasures in my hometown of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, great actors and voiceover artists and all of that stuff. But I really want you to think, what would you do without the ability to communicate quickly? How would your life be different? Communication sure is easy today. A quick pair of thumbs can easily send a text to a friend, email someone around the globe, or place a call to order a pizza. Each time you do any of these things, information is being transmitted from one place to another faster than you can say transatlantic cable. Transat- Stop! Already there. You can stop. Okay. But if you have learned anything from this show, you should know that it wasn't always this easy. A device called the telegraph was the first big development in getting information from one point to another. It changed things dramatically because it was the first time information didn't have to be physically carried. A letter on horseback, a note on a boat, even a message in a bottle. These were a few of the only ways to tell someone in another place something, anything. Imagine how different life was. And imagine how revolutionary it must have been when an electric pulse could finally travel through a wire and deliver a message to that person much more quickly. British scientists William Cook and Charles Wheatstone created the first commercial telegraph. That wasn't all they dabbled in. Wheatstone also invented a new kind of concertina. A squeezy reed instrument, sort of like an accordion. As well as the stereoscope. A Victorian parlor device that looked like a funny pair of binoculars and created three-dimensional images out of doubled pictures printed onto changeable cards. If you've ever used a Viewmaster toy, it was kind of like that. Anyway, their version of the telegraph used multiple wires to carry electric pulses, which would move needles on the receiving end. These needles would point to the letters on a dial. This would slowly spell out the words of a message, letter by letter. In one sense, their version was nice because it required no special code or special understanding from the operator. You just had to know how to read. 
But installing the multiple wires was expensive, inconsistent, and difficult. So soon, Samuel Morse's single wire telegraph became the international favorite. Because the message was on a single wire, it could only send one letter at a time. And it didn't actually use letters, but something to represent letters. It required people to use a code known as Morse code. Operators had to learn a new alphabet of short dots, or dits, and long dashes, or das, of the code to get each letter, which they would translate. It wasn't immediate. Telegraphs took time to send and receive, as the letter-by-letter -letter codes had to travel along the wire. But it was still faster than trains, horses, or running really, really fast. Almost as soon as Morse's telegraph debuted in the 1840s, someone was like, Hey, we should put one of these in the ocean and send messages to Europe. At the time, to send a letter from New York to London usually took 12 days of sea travel. That's not even factoring in the time on land the letter would need to be carried. So communication took a long time. Samuel Morse believed in his creation and wanted it to make a difference. So he said, Great idea. Let me help. Turns out running a wire across the Atlantic Ocean was a lot harder than you might think. Or maybe you're a reasonable person and you realized immediately that this was a super difficult thing to do. It was especially so in the 1800s. Either way, there was a guy who, with Sammy Morse's help, was going to see that it happened no matter what got in the way. His name was Cyrus Field, and he got rich in the paper business. It wasn't Dunder Mifflin that he founded, but another real and thriving paper company that sold newsprint to the penny press and tabloid newspapers of New England. The company did so well that he retired at the age of 34 as one of New York's richest men. With plenty of life left to live, he dedicated the remainder to the transatlantic cable, a wire to stretch across the ocean, settled on the bottom deep below the water. This marvel-to-be would carry electric signals and deliver international messages in Samuel Morse's special code. Both America and England loved the idea and pledged support and some money. He sold stock in his new telegraph company to help raise funds, but mostly he put up his own sweet, sweet paper-making money to get the project off the ground. Or, I guess, underwater? We'll spare you the super technical details, mostly because we are kids podcasters and not electrical engineers. But the telegraphic cable had to be over 2,600 miles long to stretch from Europe to North America, and every one of the 2,600 miles of cable had to be insulated and protected from the rocky bottom, corrosion from the salty seawater, and any marine life that may cause trouble. So it was coated in latex, then tarred hemp, and lastly wrapped in heavy iron braids. It took months for giant teams to make. In 1857, nearly two decades after Morse's telegraph's debut, two ships sailed out from the coast of Ireland and started to unspool the gigantic telegraph cable to the bottom of the ocean. The mood aboard the British ship HMS Agamemnon and the American ship USS Niagara was probably bubbling from excitement. Those aboard watched the first of the cable disappear into the mysterious ocean. They must have known they stood on the threshold of a new frontier, ready to connect two continents as never before with the power of one seemingly magical 
Uh, the line broke. The line? You mean the cable we have to stretch across the ocean for the next few months? It's only the first day! Yep. Broken. Just flopping around at the bottom of the ocean. Okay. So after just a few miles had been unspooled, the would-be transatlantic cable snapped. Undeterred, the brave crews used grappling hooks to find the lost cable, which they brought, once again, to the surface. They spliced the sunken section back onto the remaining cable spooled on the boat. Now things were going right. Back on track. Ready to pull this wire across the ocean. Days went by, the cable constantly sinking to the bottom, making its steady way across to North America. Soon enough, this technological marvel would be... Uh... The cable broke again. What? Again? What happened? It broke. What do you want me to say? I want you to say it's not broken. You want me to lie to you? No, I just want it to be not broken. I don't know what to tell you. We should probably call this off. Better head back home. The weather's getting too bad. So they called it off for the year. Just left the cable down there and everything. In 1858, they tried again, but this time with a new plan. Instead of starting from one shore, the boats started out in the center of the Atlantic. The Agamemnon and the Niagara were each loaded down with tons of cable, which they spliced together, connecting the two boats by miles of cable. Then they headed out in opposite directions, the Agamemnon to Ireland and the Niagara to Newfoundland in Canada. As they made their ways, the cable slowly expanded to span the two continents. Cable broke. Are you kidding me? Okay, I guess. Can you pull it back up and splice it? Will do. So they did, and continued on the arduous journey of technological continental connection. Cable broke again. Again? Oh, for the love of... Why are we putting ourselves through this? For the future of communication and uniting the world, right? Right, right. You're right. Okay, then. Third time's the charm? They tried a third time, and the third time... Was a charm. Was a charm. Days after beginning from the middle of the ocean, they arrived at their respective shores, connected by a crazy long cable. On land, teams of horses carried the ends of the cable to the sites where they would be attached to the telegraph receivers. Once complete, a message could theoretically be sent. Then came the big moment, a transcontinental message. The first of its sort was sent whizzing across the ocean. Well, maybe whizzing isn't the best term. Queen Victoria of England sent 100 words to President James Buchanan. But since each letter of those 100 words had to be sent individually through a wire across the ocean, it took 16 hours or so. Luckily, James Buchanan's reply was shorter, but no less flowery. The telegraph was a wonder of the times. Finally, people were connected as never before. Transatlantic cable fever swept America. Fireworks and parades celebrated the achievement. Queen Victoria's telegraph message was reprinted in the papers. People read the harrowing accounts of how the cable was laid. And all of the leftover cable was purchased by companies like Tiffany & Company. These companies cut the wire into sizes appropriate for souvenirs, decorative sculptures, and even jewelry. Lucky women walked around with pieces of leftover transatlantic cable dangling from their ears or around their necks. Never mind that it looked like a chunk of black licorice. It was amazing. There was plenty of it. 
and it was on everyone's mind. And necks, and ears, and wrists. Eh, it's a living. Now when people tell this story, they always point out what an achievement the transatlantic cable was. But they don't always point out that just two or three weeks after the marvelous Queen to President telegraphic exchange, the line stopped working. And it's not like you can call your phone company and get a contractor out to service such a cable. It was toast. All that work, all that cable, all that water, and it just stopped working. It's okay, huh? really. The wire proved it was possible. And since then, people haven't looked back. I mean, you're probably not listening to this on a telegraph, right? What? No. They surely downloaded it wirelessly. I figured, I mean... I mean, it would have taken a long time. A long time? To send this episode in Morse code? I mean... I mean... I mean, they ain't wrong. Customers are rushing to your store. Do you have a point-of-sale system you can trust? You need Shopify for retail. With Shopify, you get a powerhouse selling partner that effortlessly unites your in-person and online sales into one source of truth. Track every sale across your business in one place and know exactly what's in stock. Connect with customers inline and online. Shopify helps you drive store traffic with plug-and-play tools built for marketing campaigns from TikTok to Instagram and beyond. Shopify's sleek, reliable POS hardware takes every major payment method and looks fabulous at the same time. Do retail right with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash lifestyle, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash lifestyle to take your retail business to the next level today. Calling all kids in the car. Brittany and Meredith here from the chart-topping Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast. Are you dreading another silent car ride with the fam? We've got the cure. Three rounds of fresh trivia every single week. Movies, music, even science and Disney. We've got something for every trivia buff in the car. No more crickets chirping on those long journeys. The Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast is your secret weapon for connecting and laughing with kids of all ages. Teens, toddlers, adults, it doesn't matter. Spark their curiosity and challenge their brains with every episode. New episodes drop weekly wherever you get your podcasts. Search for the Family Road Trip Trivia Podcast and turn those car rides into epic adventures. And now, I mean, it's time for You Have 30 Seconds. Well, I am really excited about this month's You Have 30 Seconds. Nora, take it away. Hi, my name is Nora and I am from Chicago. I will be talking about Maria Tallstreet. She was born in Oklahoma. She was part Native American and she loved music and dancing when she was young. She danced with the New York City Ballet for 18 years. She was the first prima ballerina and danced as part of the Sugar Plum Fairy. She moved to Chicago and taught, and taught ballet. She started the Chicago Ballet. She died in 2013. Nora, thank you so much. This was great. You did such a great job, and what a great person to pick. Maria Tallchief. She has actually been on my list of people to do a story about, and this was a big inspiration for me to revisit that. So I hope to feature her even more in depth in the future. Thank you, Nora. If you have a submission for You Have 30 Seconds, all you have to do is visit our website, thepastandthecurious.com, for instructions. It's pretty easy, though. 
I mean... It's quiz time. It's quiz time. It's quiz time. Time, time. It is quiz time, and here is your first question. What short-lived mail delivery system, which employed young men on horseback, was put out of business by the telegraph and the railroad? If you're a regular listener, you should know this. The Pony Express is legendary now, but the organization of horseback riders who delivered mail and messages to the western United States was really only in operation for a few months. Those riders would pass the mail to one another like relay racers passing a baton. You can learn more about that in one of our earliest episodes. I think it's maybe three or four or five. I don't know. It's called mail. Okay, question number two. Perhaps the most well-known message that is sent by Morse code is only three letters long. In the code, those letters would be three dots, three dashes, and three more dots. That's how you spell this code. Can you guess what this message is? This code spells SOS, which is a distress signal that someone might send if there was something terrible, like maybe a shipwreck, happening on their end. Many people believe that it stands for Save Our Souls or Save Our Ship, but these phrases are most likely something that people attach to the code later. Originally, SOS was chosen because it was a combination of letters in the code for anyone to remember in a panic. It's very easy to remember. Three dots, three dashes, three dots. S-O-S. Even somebody who wasn't a telegraph operator could remember that and take care of it in an emergency. Okay, the third and final question. We usually say hello when we answer the phone. But what greeting did Alexander Graham Bell intend for people to say when he invented the telephone? Most historians say that we can thank Thomas Edison for the greeting, hello, which we say now when answering the phone. But if Alexander Graham Bell had gotten his way, we would all pick up the phone and say, ahoy. This is particularly funny to me uh, as it is a practice that my wife has been single-handedly trying to keep alive for years now. She always answers the phone with an ahoy. And uh, I mean, you got to admit it. Ahoy is way cooler. All Alexander Graham Bell ever wanted was a middle name. He watched with envy as both of his older brothers proudly promenaded around Scotland with their perfect three-part names. Edward Charles Bell and Melville James Bell. Alexander was on Team Two Name, and that didn't make him very happy. It's no big deal, really. There are plenty of people with only a first and last name. Why, even Abraham Lincoln made it through life without a middle name. But Alexander wouldn't let it be. For years, he begged his father for a moniker to go in the middle of his signature, and on his 11th birthday, all of his dreams came true. Instead of a present or a pony, or a pile of cash, he finally got his greatest wish. To add a name to his future business card, Graham. 
So think about that next time you're hoping for something big on your upcoming birthday. Even as a young boy, Alexander <clears throat> Graham Bell had an inventive streak. At 12, he invented a dehusking machine for wheat. He had a friend whose parents owned a flour mill, and this young man hated the drudgery of his job within the operation, which was getting the wheat ready for milling into flour. So young Alec, as many called him, did his pal a solid and created a machine that made the job infinitely easier. He was a good friend and a capable inventor. Years later, the family was still using the young boy's invention. Bell also had a great interest in sound and communication. When he was a young student living in a dormitory, he ran a telegraph from his room to his best friend's room. It was unusual in the 1800s for two teenagers to have the ability to text directly with one another. But since Alec was so clever, and since they both knew Morse code, well, they were ahead of their time. Without question, Alexander's interest in sound came from his father. Both his dad and his grandfather were noted elocutionists, people who dealt with the understanding and teaching of the clear expressiveness of human speech, just something I struggle with sometimes. Likewise, his other passion came from his mother. Alexander's mother gradually lost her hearing when he was a child. Alec loved his mother dearly, and they both learned a special manual language in order to communicate. When there were guests at the house, he would sit by her side and tap out the conversation in this language so that she could follow along. It's little wonder why Alexander would dedicate so much of his life to working with the deaf community. After both of his brothers tragically died of illnesses as young adults, the family moved across the ocean to Canada. Alexander's interest in developing new ways of communication for the deaf eventually led him to Boston, where he taught at Boston College. And it was while in Boston that he happened to meet a man named Dom Pedro II. Dom Pedro number two wasn't just any man, he was the emperor of Brazil, and he was on a tour of America. The emperor watched with great interest as Bell led a class for deaf students. He was impressed, and upon return, he helped found a similar school for the deaf in Brazil. When Bell wasn't teaching, he was wrapped up in experiments. Some investors had agreed to help him financially while he worked to develop a harmonic telegraph, or a telegraph that could send multiple messages at a time through only one wire. This would be a big development over the single electrical signals that a device was normally limited to. But soon, his attention shifted to the dream of a device that could send audio, or sound, through a wire. Many thought it was absurd and a waste of time. In 1874, a young man named Thomas Watson was brought in to help with this harmonic telegraph, but soon enough, the young electrical engineer was also enamored with the idea of transmitting the human voice. For years, they worked on experiments that would lead to the telephone. Careful and deliberate experimentation can lead to progress, and for them, it certainly did. In March of 1876, they filed a patent for the telephone, and they were delighted when they finally had a successful test. There's a bit of variation in the stories that are often told about this moment, and the most colorful one goes like this. 
Alexander Graham Bell and Thomas Watson would often try to send messages to each other from separate rooms, but the signal was never strong enough. Bell decided to try using a battery to boost the signal. Since this was the 1800s and there were no convenience stores at which to buy batteries, and there weren't actually even batteries available to buy anywhere else anyway, he had to make one. This involved a large beaker of acid, and once the makeshift battery was connected, Watson took his place on the end of the phone receiver in another room. This was when history was made. Finally, after months of stops and starts and failures and reimaginings, Mr. Bell's voice came through the speaker of the phone. What he said has been forever remembered as, Mr. Watson, come here. I wanted to see you. This might seem like a strange thing to say to someone you just saw a few minutes ago, and who is just, you know, over in the next room. But both men agreed these were the first words uttered on the phone. In Bell's account, he elaborated that after hearing the message, Mr. Watson did come with much excitement. When asked to repeat what he heard, he repeated the phrase verbatim. Years later, in his own account, Watson claimed that these particular words were actually uttered because... The beaker of acid for the makeshift battery was spilled on Bell's pants, and he needed help. If this was the case, the meaning of the words might have been significantly different. But really, don't you think he would have said something more like, Maybe the truth is that an outburst like this really was what happened. But the two agreed that, Ouchie Wawa would not have been very dignified first words for such a historic moment. Actually, members of Watson's family believed that he embellished the story about the acid later in his life and that the spill never really happened. Burnt buns or no burnt buns, the telephone was a success. And that same year, 1876, was the year that Philadelphia would hold a World's Fair to celebrate the 100th anniversary of American independence. These fairs brought audiences of citizens and dignitaries and investors looking for the most exciting new things being created. The phone sure seemed like one of those, but he almost didn't go. The deadline to have a display was close, and he was a bit unsure. Being surrounded by the most amazing new things in the world, it would be easy to be drowned out. Even if you just invented the telephone, it might be hard to get attention. This is what gave Alexander hesitation. Plus, the phone was so strange, no one even knew what it was. But his soon-to-be wife convinced him to go, all but packing his bags and pushing him out the door. That year, lucky visitors to the World's Fair were invited to stand in the torch of the yet-to-be-installed Statue of Liberty. Guests paid 10 cents to eat an exotic fruit new to American mouths called bananas? Or is it bananas? Anyway, they were eaten with a fork and knife. People also saw the most advanced typewriters, tasted popcorn for the first time, bought bottles of a new condiment from Heinz called ketchup, and even marveled at a new invention sure to revolutionize life as they knew it. The portable bathtub. Spoiler alert, the portable bathtub didn't change the world. It barely made a splash. I don't know about you, but I've never really had the need to take my bathtub anywhere. And somewhere in the midst of this, and thousands of other new things, was Alexander Graham Bell and his telephone. 
He was tucked away in a forgettable corner on the second floor of the machinery hall, and after several days had impressed very few people, which was strange since he only just invented the telephone. In fact, the judges who chose and awarded the best inventions of the fair, which was a big deal, had never even made it to his table. Without their attention and the make-or-break decision power that they held, he figured his time had been wasted. The telephone may or may not have impressed them, but if they never even bothered to look, well, it certainly wouldn't. He was planning to leave his hopes of World's Fair attention and accolade for his new phone behind and head home early. When the judges suddenly appeared in his area, there was a glimmer of hope, but it was late in the day and they were tired, hungry, and overwhelmed by seeing so many new inventions, many of which left them confused or bored. They decided to look at one more invention display and then call it quits. Alec did not expect them to pick his, so he resigned himself to the fate of a world's fair failure. But then he heard a voice he recognized, and it called him by name. It was the voice of Dom Pedro II, Emperor of Brazil. Dom Pedro had become a star of the World's Fair, a charismatic man who garnered attention everywhere he went. And amazingly, he recognized Bell from his time in Boston, and by sheer chance was walking with the judges. He convinced the judges to see and hear whatever it may be that Alexander Graham Bell was displaying, recalling how impressed he had been with the young Scottish immigrant years before. Without missing a beat, Bell explained his idea, but the real magic was in the demonstration. He instructed Dom Pedro to sit at the table and hold the receiver to his ear. With the judges standing around the Brazilian leader, he explained that he would go to the mouthpiece he had installed and wired on the other side of the hall, which he would speak into. His voice would be heard in the receiver, he told them. Faces were filled with doubt. But with no time to waste, Bell disappeared. Moments later, Dom Pedro heard the voice of Alexander Graham Bell reciting the famous soliloquy from Shakespeare's play, Hamlet. To be or not to be, that is the question. Whether it is nobler in the mind to suffer the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune or to take arms against a sea of troubles. The emperor exclaimed, I hear, I hear, to be or not to be. He practically jumped for joy and passed the receiver around for everyone to hear Bell's voice. It was a moment that changed the world and the lives of Bell and Watson. The telephone proved practical, and it was amazing. As with most technology, it still took the phone a while to catch on. In fact, Western Union passed up a chance to buy the patent for the telephone for $100,000. They thought it wouldn't replace the telegraph. Were they right? They were worse than right. They were wrong. Two years later, the patent was worth $25 million. After the phone had become more commonplace, there was another World's Fair many years later in 1915 in San Francisco, California. And one of the big developments featured for that event was the first transcontinental phone call. For the first time, thanks to a network of wires spanning the country, a phone call was made from the east coast of America to the west. The honor of the ceremonial call went to Alexander Graham Bell in New York and his old friend Thomas Watson, who was at the fairgrounds in California. Bell's first words on the call? Mr. Watson, come here. I wanted to see you. This time, Thomas Watson was 3,400 miles away, a lot farther than the room next door. And his response was, 
it'll take me five days. At least those were the words he said. I think the phrasing was probably a little different. That's it. That's episode 48 of The Past and the Curious. Thank you for listening. And thanks to my friend Tessa Flannery and actually the whole team at Girl Tales. They are an amazing team. It's an amazing show. And they've become good friends. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, You should check them out. I think a lot of people that listen to The Past and the Curious will really dig it. And their Nova's Lab series, which Tessa has a big part in, um, those are very history-based. So check them out. I have a bunch of Patreon people to thank. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. I love it. Thank you so much. It really helps me keep going. And, you know, if you want to get on board, you can do it. You can find the Patreon link on our website. But here we go. Nora and Everett in Chicago. Thank you. Nora and Everett. Everett. Yes. Holy cow. Ruben in Johannesburg. Did you hear that? Ruben in Johannesburg. What? That's amazing. Thank you, Ruben. I'm so glad that you are out there. Oh, but wait, there's more. We have a Parker and a Decker. Parker and Decker. Thank you, Parker and Decker. Parker and Decker. Oh, yes. Sophie. Thank you, Sophie. So great, Sophie. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Sophie. Oh, another sibling combo. Sabina and Freddy. Sabina and Freddy. Thank you so very, 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 very much. Sabina and Freddy. I'm glad you're out there with your ears a-listening. Michael, an adult who listens to the show and chose to support. What? That's absolutely amazing. Thank you so much, Michael. And last but not least is Callie in Northampton. Callie. Callie! Thank you so much! Callie. Everyone, Nora and Everett and Ruben and Parker and Decker and Sophie and Sabina and Freddie and Michael and Callie. Thank you very much. I love it. Thanks for listening to The Past and the Curious. My name is Mick Sullivan. This has been a lot of fun. We're going to have a lot more fun in the months ahead. Be well. Be well.